Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be with you and to preach on one of my very favorite books of the Bible uh, and to be at this church pastored by one of my very favorite people in the world, uh, Josh Vincent. I've received a lot of calls from Josh over the 20, almost 20 years that we've been friends. And many of those, those calls I've got from Josh have been really entertaining. Uh, some of you who've got calls from Josh know how they, they can be. For the first couple of years that I knew Josh, nearly every time he would call, he'd use some different voice. And he'd be pretending to be looking for something like an, an oil change or a pineapple pizza or a new pig. Uh, and those were the days before iPhones, so he could actually kind of get away with it. I would never know when I picked up the phone if I was really talking to him or to someone else who had just got the wrong number. And, and sometimes, to keep me on my toes, he would even call from different phones. So I, I really wouldn't be sure. So I've gotten a lot of weird calls from Josh over the years, but none of them made me laugh as hard as a call that I thought was from him, but wasn't. <laughs> uh, but it took a while before I was actually able to laugh about this call. You see, it came at just about the worst possible time. I had a Skype interview. This was back in the days before Zoom, so Skype was the thing. So I had a Skype interview for a job that I really wanted at a university in the Midwest. And I had Skype all ready to go, and I was waiting for the search committee to start the meeting. And then I got a phone call from a Phoenix area code. And the university that I was interviewing with, it was in the Midwest, it wasn't in Phoenix. In fact, there's only one person that I could think of who would call me from Phoenix. And I also knew that just hanging up on that person wasn't guaranteed to keep him from calling again. So I answered the call. Is this Will Kynes? The voice said. And that's the way that Josh often started his prank calls. And I said, I'm sorry, Josh. I really have to go. I'm about to start a meeting. Can you call me back later, okay? And then the voice repeated, is this Will Kynes? And I said, Josh, I don't have time for this. And then, sounding kind of confused and frustrated, the voice repeated again, is this Will Kynes? Bye, Josh, I said, and then I hung up. And then right at that moment, well, maybe a few seconds later, I heard a chime on my computer. The chat box on Skype appeared, and it was the university that I was supposed to be interviewing with. And the chat said, I'm sorry, we're having trouble getting Skype to work. We just tried calling you. And then there was a long pause. And then they wrote, but I think we had the wrong number. I didn't get that job. So the context in which you encounter something, what you expect when you encounter something, can radically change the way that you perceive it, right? It can, disastrous, it can create disastrously wrong expectations that then distort your understanding of it. As soon as I saw that Phoenix area code, I immediately thought of all those prank calls that I had received from Josh over the years, and it never occurred to me 
that it might be the chair of the search committee who just happened to be from Phoenix and so had a Phoenix area code on his cell phone trying to call me to set up the meeting that was about to start any moment. And I would suggest that a similar thing can happen to us when we read the book of Job. Many of us have been taught to read the book of Job as wisdom literature, which is a context that connects it with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And then that context shapes the way that we perceive all three of those books. We think of them as more philosophical and intellectual. We think of them as abstract reflections on the way to live our lives well. Reflections on questions of meaning and suffering, you know, on wisdom. But the truth is that Job was never actually read that way. None of those books were really read in that kind of abstract, philosophical way until the 19th century. So that context, wisdom literature, it creates expectations that we bring to Job. Expectations that it will deal with philosophical problems of evil and God's justice and the suffering of the righteous. And those things are there, but focusing on them distracts us from the real power of the book. Job does teach us wisdom, but it is no abstract philosophical treatise. No, it's a scream into the dark night of the soul, an honest and disturbing battle with God in the midst of pain. And we see this better if instead of reading Job primarily in connection with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the kind of abstract philosophical questions that leads us to focus on, we see it better if we read Job after the Psalms, which is in fact where Job appears in the traditional Hebrew order of the Old Testament. So rightly understanding Job depends more on seeing its connections with the Psalms than with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. The Psalms as a whole, as a collection, they follow a sort of narrative progression. And it starts in Psalm 1 with a description of the blessed righteous man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord. He prospers in all that he does. Unlike the wicked, who are like chaff that the wind drives away, the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water. So the Psalms begin by orienting us to the way that life is supposed to be. But in the following Psalms, we see that this is not always the case. Psalm after Psalm laments the suffering experienced by the righteous. In Psalms 42 and 43, for example, the psalmist cries out, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And this creates a kind of disorientation that culminates in Psalm 73. There, the psalmist is tempted to be envious of the wicked who luxuriate in their prosperity while he suffers in his faithfulness. But in the midst of that psalm, Psalm 73, the psalmist's perspective on suffering is transformed by an experience of the presence of the Lord. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then the psalmist concludes, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
But this spiritual insight that we get in Psalm 3, that doesn't change the fact that life often feels far too brutish and short. And God often feels distant in the midst of it. And so that leads the psalmists to pray with a new kind of urgency that we see in a psalm like Psalm 90. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for, for as many years as we have seen evil. But, as Psalm 107 repeatedly reminds us, our God is a God who delivers us from our distress, whatever that may be. And that leads the psalmist to declare in Psalm 107, verse 8, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. The disorientation that dominates the psalms gradually moves to a reorientation towards God's faithfulness, which then culminates in joyous praise. The psalms conclude with all creation together praising God. Every single breath that is drawn is a hallelujah. As the very last verse of the psalm says, Psalm 150, verse 6, let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The story that the Psalms tell progresses from the way the world should be through the rocky terrain of the way that the world too often is to a glorious vista of the way the world will one day be. It's just like the scenic overlook reached after a strenuous hike. That vista is even more beautiful thanks to the struggles that the community of faith has endured. And this story that we see in the Psalms is embodied in the life of Job. When we meet Job at the beginning of the book, he is the blessed man of Psalm 1. We're told in the very first verse that he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And all that he does prospers. He has 10 children and thousands of sheep and camels, but Satan comes to God and challenges this connection between piety, right, his fear of the Lord, and prosperity, the blessings that Job has received in his life. How do we know that it isn't the prosperity that's driving the piety? That, God, that Job is only being good, he's only fearing the Lord because of all the good things that God has given him. And if that might be the case, is a prosperity-driven piety even a real piety at all? So God allows Satan to put Job to the test and remove all that God has given to him. To understand the book, it's crucial that we recognize that Job does not suffer because he has sinned, but because he is righteous. And suffer he does. Now I've heard it said, 2020 equals... 1918 plus 1929 plus 1968. We've had a global pandemic, an economic recession, and protests and riots inspired by injustice. I think I can safely say that none of us have experienced a year quite like last year before. And it's still not over, really. I mean, COVID still dominates the headlines. There's now a shortage of workers and breaks in the supply chain that are continuing to ravage the economy, and injustice still remains. We haven't faced anything like this 
before. But there is a biblical figure who has shared a similar confluence of afflictions. He lost family members and his own health. Suddenly and unexpectedly, everything he owned was taken from him. He faced injustice so obvious that the only proper response was protest. Job was submerged in the collective pain that we have experienced over the past 20 months in a matter of moments. His servants interrupted each other to deliver the news of his losses in rapid succession. They're just like waves of suffering crashing against his psyche. So Job knows our pain. In fact, a further reason not to consider Job wisdom literature is that in the face of that suffering, the book is more about comfort than about wisdom. Though Job and his friends talk about wisdom a good deal as they debate Job's situation, and the book does include this majestic poem about wisdom in chapter 28, wisdom is not the real driving force of the story. The book's big idea is the question of whether and how, in the midst of his agony, Job will find comfort, and how we can find comfort in our suffering as well. Along the way, the book of Job addresses three other important questions about suffering. The first, how should I respond to God in the midst of suffering? The second, how should I respond to others who are suffering? And then the third, what does suffering teach us about the nature of God? So first, how should I respond to God in the midst of suffering? After Job's devastating losses, he begins a mourning ritual, tearing his clothes, shaving his head, and sitting in ashes. Job initially responds to God with admirable, submissive piety, just like that song that we sung earlier. He says in 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in 210, shall we accept good from God and shall we not receive evil? And this is the most that we often hear from Job in the church, when we hear from him at all. But he has, a, he has more to say, a lot more, and it's not pleasant. As you heard earlier in the service, Job chapter 19, Job is no longer the blessed man of Psalm 1. He's now the anguished sufferer of the lament psalms. Job curses the day of his birth in chapter 3. He lashes out at the friends who have come to console him. He complains about his isolation from his friends and family. He even appears to accuse God of injustice and vicious attacks. Taking aim at God in 10 verse 3, for example, Job asks, Does it seem good to you, God, to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the schemes of the wicked? Later, echoing Psalm 1, where it says that the wicked will be like chaff, that the wind drives away, Job asks in 21, 17 to 18, how often is it that the wicked are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? We like that stoic martyr of the faith that we encounter in the first couple chapters of the book, but this Job who rails on chapter after chapter, complaining, even accusing God, well, he makes us feel uncomfortable. And his friends, they feel the same way. They do all that they can to encourage him to calm down, speak to God more respectfully, and repent of his sin. But Job refuses. 
Something is not right in this world, he insists, and God better do something about it. Shockingly, at the end of the book, in 42 verse 7, God declares that it is Job and not the friends who has spoken what is right about him. Now, God doesn't justify this surprising verdict, but the rest of the Old Testament does. The heroes of Israelite faith frequently question God's justice in their current experience, not from a lack of trust in God, but precisely because they believe that God is good, powerful, and loving enough to do what is just. So when God contemplates destroying Sodom, Abraham advocates for the deliverance of any righteous people in the city, asking, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Moses, he similarly dissuades God from wiping out Israel after the sin of the golden calf by reminding God of his promises to their forefathers, his mighty acts on their behalf, and how the Egyptians might respond. Jacob physically wrestles with God, refusing to let go until God blesses him, thereby earning the name Israel, which is defined as he who struggles with God. And living up to that name, the Israelite psalmists dare to cry, why and how long? And their prophets intercede on behalf of the people. They struggle with God, but they never let him go because of their faith in his justice, his goodness and power. And God repeatedly responds favorably to their requests. Reflecting this biblical tradition, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 18 of a widow whose persistent pleading convinces even an unjust judge to intervene on her behalf. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This indicates that God's chosen ones may encounter injustice and that they may express their faith through pleading with God to rectify that justice rather than simply submissively accepting it. And this, tra this tradition that we see in the Old Testament, that we see in that parable, was picked up by enslaved African-American Christians here in America. It gave them hope as they faced the merciless oppression of slavery. We can hear it in the spirituals that they sang, such as Wrestle on Jacob, or I saw the beam in my sister's eye, which includes this verse. And I had a mighty battle like Jacob and the angel. Jacob, time of old. I didn't intend to let him go until Jesus blessed my soul. Job's complaints should be understood in this same tradition of defiant faith. When he asks God whether oppressing his creation and bestowing favor on the wicked seems good to him, he fully believes, he knows that God does not approve of such injustice. His argument with God depends on God agreeing with him on that point. Like the arguments of those other heroes of Israelite faith, Job's accusatory question, just like Abraham's, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, is an expression of his faith. It's intended to remind God of who he has revealed himself to be, just, good, powerful, committed to his people. 
Job expresses the depth of his faith by clinging to God's goodness, even when his experience of God would suggest just the opposite. Though he believes God is the reason for his suffering, ultimately, he knows he has no firmer hope than that same God. As Goethe writes in Tasso, at last the sailor lays firm hold upon the rock upon which he was dashed. Like Job, all that's happened to us in the past 20 months it actually has the potential to transform our understanding of how we relate to God in the midst of our suffering. Job's pious submission in the book's first chapters, it's easy to endorse when we consider suffering from the outside. But this type of intense and sustained affliction that we've experienced, it can actually forge together faith and protest into a stronger theolo theological alloy. Job, and these other Old Testament exemplars of faith, Jesus' persistent widow, and our brothers and sisters in Christ who face the tortures of slavery, they all encourage us to express our faith in God by crying out to him to demonstrate his revealed character, by ending the ravages of sin in this world, whether that's this pandemic or the injustices that continue to plague humanity. More than that, hearing their cries can train the hearts of us who have been spared from the same depths of suffering so that we might be able to empathize with their struggles and enter into those struggles with them through our prayers and our actions. In their revolt against a world gone wrong, laments like Job's and those that we read in the Psalms, they sharpen our longing for a world made right. But I'll warn you, relating to God in this way may feel, well, weird. I remember when I first experienced it. I once preached a message emphasizing this aspect of Job in a church in Mozambique, which is an African country that has been torn apart by civil war and poverty. And light shone through a gaping hole in the roof of the church onto the small congregation who were sitting on wooden benches strewn across the dirt floor. And I told them that the book of Job and the Lament Psalms, they teach us to follow the kind of advice that Soren Kierkegaard once gave. Complain. The Lord is not afraid. He can certainly defend himself. And women in tattered dresses with babies slung across their backs, they stood, they held up their hands to that hole in the roof, and they wept. They wailed in a way that, me, that made me, as a buttoned-down Westerner, honestly feel uncomfortable. But it was one of the most powerful worship experiences that I have ever had. And afterwards, that weeping turned to laughter and hugs all around. As Psalm 30 says, the Lord turned our mourning into dancing. Addressing God this way has the power to provide that kind of comfort again, even now. Which leads us to question two. How should I respond to others who are suffering? Job's friends, as 2.11 tells us, they come with the purpose of comforting Job. However, they fail miserably in this task. Job, in fact, calls them in 16.2, miserable comforters. After they go back and forth in chapter after chapter of dialogue, and the friends show themselves unable to respond to Job's complaints, 
Job then asks them in 2134, how then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There's nothing left of your answers but falsehood. If we would raise theological objections against Job's bold protests, the book's presentation of Job's friends should caution us. Attempting to comfort Job, they preach profound theological truths about God's just punishment of the wicked and sovereign deliverance of the righteous to a man whom God has allowed to suffer because of his righteousness. And as Job doggedly declares the injustice of his situation, the friends turn on him, accusing him of great wickedness. So why this change of heart? The friends become enemies because they are terrified of Job's suffering. As Job says in 621, now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. They simply can't believe that Job is genuinely righteous because if that's true, then they could share his fate. So they want to find some distinction between themselves and Job that can protect them from his suffering. If his suffering is because he's wicked, then their righteousness, it'll keep them safe. But if he's just as righteous as they are, then what assurance do they have? And that's why blaming the victim is so disturbingly instinctive and common. To take a recent example, if I'm honest, this same fear is behind the question that I now find myself asking every time that I hear that someone has been hospitalized or has died from COVID. Every time I hear something like that, there's this question that pops up in my mind. I'm not proud of it, but it's there. And that question is, well, were they vaccinated? I'm not, I'm trying to create some distinction between them and me, right? I'm trying to say, well, they did something that I didn't do. They made a choice that I haven't made, and so I can feel safe, right? Their suffering is in a different category than me. But by encouraging us to enter into Job's suffering, by making clear that we are not better than him, by judging the friend's efforts to distance themselves from him, the book of Job seeks to break down those boundaries that we create between ourselves and the suffering of others. And I'll warn you that doing this will be frightening, as it was for Job's friends. But it's the first step in transforming the apathy or even antipathy that we feel toward those who suffer into love. What Job's friends should have done and what we need to do when we encounter our neighbors' complaints and protests about the afflictions that they face is listen first so that we can enter into their suffering with them. So before you speak, ask yourself, am I being one of Job's friends right now? This is one of the strengths of the community that we have the opportunity to experience in the church. It encourages us to get involved in alleviating the suffering of others. If you are honest with one another about your struggles in small groups here at Trinity, for example, you'll be encouraged to make the suffering of your brothers and sisters your own, to learn how to comfort one another and how to be comforted. Job's friend's failure could make us feel pressure to say the right thing, but actually, it should have the, the opposite effect. 
In Nicholas Walterstoff's devastatingly beautiful book about the death of his 25-year-old son in a climbing accident, he writes that the most helpful thing that people said to him afterwards was simply, I don't know what to say, but I am here with you in your suffering. Job's friends, they did just the opposite. They tried to explain Job's suffering away. In the end, in fact, the point of Job's wise friend's failure to comfort Job is that there is some suffering that human wisdom, even if it is informed by Scripture, is insufficient to comfort. And God's appearance to Job at the end of the book, that drives home that point. And there's actually freedom in pointing to that comfort, the comfort that God can provide, rather than feeling the pressure to provide it yourself. God's appearance, it gives us comfort, not only as we attempt to comfort others, but in his appearance. So that leads us to our third question. What does suffering teach us about the nature of God? When the distant God finally does appear, what he says is hardly what we expect, or likely what Job himself anticipated. God doesn't explain the reasons behind Job's suffering. The wager with Satan is never mentioned. He doesn't address Job's afflictions at all, at least not directly. Instead, with a barrage of biting rhetorical questions, God first establishes himself as the creator of the cosmos. So Job 38, 4-7 gives us a flavor of God's response. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? God then describes his meticulous care for his creatures, dangerous, unclean, and uncontrollable animals below and beyond Job's concern. If God is good enough to hunt prey for lionesses, feed young ravens, midwife mountain goats, even brood over the ostrich egg when its mother forsakes it, surely he cares for Job. Jesus makes a similar argument in Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Fear not, therefore, you are worth more than many sparrows. That's what God seems to be saying to Job through his description of all these animals and his concern for them. But then the speeches move on. God concludes by asserting his sovereign control over his creation in chapters 40 and 41. So he's turning from arguing from the lesser, all of these animals, to the greater, Job, to moving from arguing from the greater, these terrifying creatures, to Job's situation. He introduces Job to the monstrous behemoth and Leviathan and all their terrifying grandeur. No human can hope to tame or even survive an encounter with these creatures. They are embodiments of the human fear of chaos, of the unknown, and they cannot be slain with sword or spear or restrained with chain or rope. By describing them to Job, God acknowledges the re very real threat of fear. But God is not intimidated by these terrors. He created them. He can put Leviathan, which is a kind of souped-up crocodile, on a leash if he likes. If God is powerful enough to control Behemoth and, Le and Leviathan, then surely Job's situation is not beyond 
God's sovereign control. As Paul writes in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who could be against us? No one is too insignificant for God's care, and no suffering is too mighty to exceed his power. It's the same point that the psalmist makes in Psalm 107 by describing the various afflictions that people may face, but then demonstrating God's ability to deliver from them all. I'll never forget when this message of the divine speeches came home to me in a powerful and very personal way. As Josh mentioned, I did my PhD at the University of Cambridge, and then I was fortunate enough after that to get a postdoctoral position at the University of Oxford. Uh, and it was certainly a great honor to have that opportunity, but it only paid me the equivalent of $12,000 a year. So I was paying a lot for this honor. Uh, and Oxford is a very expensive place to live. And Vanessa and I, we had already had our first child, and uh, she was pregnant with our second. And we were just burning through our savings. There was no way we could keep this up much longer. So I needed to get a real job that would pay me a real salary, uh, or I was going to have to give up on this whole biblical scholarship thing. So I applied for every job that I could find. And I got rejected from them all, except for two. There were two that were out there that I was still waiting on. So all my hopes were on these two jobs. And one of those jobs was back at Cambridge where I had done my PhD, and it was right on my research area. And it was such a good fit for me that I had people emailing me the job advertisement and saying, hey, have you seen this? This looks like it's the perfect job for you. And Vanessa and I actually started to get pretty hopeful about it and started looking for housing in Cambridge. We really thought this is how God was going to provide for us. The other job was a complete reach that I didn't think I had any chance at, but of course I applied for it because I applied for everything. So everything was resting on this job at Cambridge, and one day I walked down to my mail cubby, and I saw an envelope with the Cambridge insignia on the outside. And I picked up the envelope, and you may have had this kind of moment in your life at some point. I knew as soon as I opened that envelope, my life would be changed forever one way or another. So I opened it, and I read those dreaded first few words. We regret to inform you. They weren't offering me the job. And I was crushed. Because I had put seven years of my life, $100,000 of my savings and the money that we had made into preparing to follow what I believed was God's calling to teach the Bible. And without this job, I was going to have to quit that and go find some other job if I was going to provide for my family. And so I just started wandering around Oxford. I was trying to pray, but I couldn't even really think straight. So I was wandering. I don't even know how I ended up there, but I ended up in the Oxford Natural History Museum. And I was looking around, and as I was walking, I saw this big stuffed ostrich and at its feet was an ostrich egg. And I thought, huh, you know, that kind of reminds me of the divine speeches in Job. I mean, I had just done my PhD on Job. Uh, that reminds me of the divine speeches in Job and how God is trying to communicate to Job that he cares for him. If he cares for the ostrich egg, then clearly he cares for Job. Hmm, maybe in this moment in which I am worrying about how I'll provide for my family, God is trying to remind me that he will provide for me. Huh. If God was really trying to get that message across to me, then I would see something like the behemoth and the leviathan, I thought to myself. 
And then I turned around, and right around the corner, there was this huge stuffed crocodile. And I looked at the crocodile, and I couldn't help but laugh. Because in the crocodile's smile, I saw the smile of God saying, Will, this situation is not beyond my control. I can, I can put the, the crocodile, the, the, the terrible Leviathan on a leash if I want. I can provide for you. You don't need to worry. And then I looked around and I realized the, the Natural History Museum there at Oxford, it's full of the breadth of God's creation. Right? Everything from butterflies to dinosaurs. And I realized that in that moment, without me realizing it, God had taken this Job scholar in this low moment of his life and walked him right into the divine speeches from the book of Job. Because that's what God does. He describes the breadth of his creation to comfort Job in this moment, and he was comforting me as well. Now, to finish my story, uh, I actually did end up getting that job that I didn't think I had any chance at. But that's not the way that stories of suffering always end for Christians, right? Sometimes people have to suffer for a very long time. Sometimes they don't see their suffering healed in this life. They have to wait until God will make all things new again. For Job, though, he does get restored. But even before he experiences his restoration, and I think this is important, before he sees this restoration, he responds to God. So let's listen to how Job understands God's speech. He responds to God in 42, 2 to 6. It might be helpful if you looked at it as we walk through this passage. 42, 2 to 6. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So I'm going to work back through this passage from the end up towards the beginning. So first, the ESV translates verse 6, as I just read, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. But the object of the verb that they translate despise is actually missing in the Hebrew. And the verb that they translate repent is better translated comfort every other time it appears in the book. So if we translate it comfort here, just like in those other places, then we actually see how God's response to Job addresses the main issue of the book. Though Job's friends fail to comfort Job, after God speaks, Job can say, therefore I reject my mourning, and I am comforted regarding dust and ashes. That's the kind translation of 42.6. Now, what is it that comforts Job if we understand 42.6 that way? Well, as 42.5 says, it's a new vision of God. So just like in Psalm 73, the presence of God transforms Job's perception of his suffering. He had heard of God, but now he has seen him. And as verses 2 to 4 indicate, that experience of God revealed to him his vast ignorance of God's wonders. 
God's wisdom or plans, and God's power by which God carries out all of his purposes. In other words, though Job is described as fearing the Lord in the book's very first verse, he now fears God in a deeper way. Thanks to his suffering and God's self-revelation, his vision of God is now much clearer, and thus his wisdom far greater. And he gains this new understanding of God, this new trust in God, even before God restores to him all that he's lost. He's still on the ash heap when he says these things. But God doesn't leave him on the ash heap. And some are disappointed by this ending of the book. Some think it's too trite that in the end God makes everything right again, just like a fairy tale, and restores to Job everything that he's lost. But I would argue that it is perfectly appropriate that the good and just God would, in the end, make everything right. And as we saw in the Psalms, it is perfectly appropriate that the book ends with a vision of a broken world put back together again. The book of Job, therefore, points to the ultimate comfort offered to us in our suffering, and therefore the most effective encouragement we can provide to those who are suffering. And that comfort comes through an encounter with God in his power, majesty, holiness, goodness, and love, through which the fear of the Lord overwhelms any human attempts at self-sufficient wisdom, like those of the friends. True comfort comes through knowing God, not just hearing about him, but seeing him face to face. How come we have such an encounter with God? Well, there's someone else who can identify with the suffering that we've collectively experienced in the last 20 months. There is another figure who embodies the story of the Psalms. We could even argue that the Psalms were written to be his story. He is the perfect, righteous, and blessed man of Psalm 1. He's someone who suffered like Job and the psalmists. Someone else who, like them, wept over loved ones who he had lost. Someone who knew poverty, someone who faced the ultimate injustice, suffered in innocence and died. But then he rose again, defeating sin and death. And in his victory, a broken world is being put back together again. He is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And through repentance from sin and faith that his life death and resurrection earned our forgiveness, we can find lasting comfort, a fortress strong in this storm-tossed world. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you are compassionate, that you comfort those who are suffering, that you heal those who are broken. Jesus, we praise you that you have suffered to bring us comfort. 
We pray that we would be willing to suffer too in order to comfort others. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.